Thanks for clicking play on PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, highly qualified and experienced information specialist and historian Graham Dominey chats with respected historian and author John LeBond regarding his latest book, The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom. This invasion in 1837 of the Zulu Kingdom by the Boers migrating from the British Cape Colony and the massacres, battles and civil war that ensued as the Zulus resisted the settlers was a crucial moment in South African history. Changing perceptions in a post-colonial world requires the reassessment of wars of colonial aggression. But there is no book in English that engages with the war between the Boers and the Zulus in its entire context or takes the Zulu evidence into proper account. This work attempts to do so. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to all those who are going to listen to this podcast. My name is Graham Dominey. I'm an historian, an archivist and former national archivist of South Africa. And in this context, I was once a student of John Band's. John Band, who I'm interviewing today, is not only a friend of long standing, uh, to put it delicately, but the Emeritus Professor of History at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. He has academic associations with Stellenbosch. He has had a long career at what was then the University of Natal and has published prolifically on wars in KwaZulu-Natal, particularly the Anglo-Zulu War, but now is slipping backward in time. And we're going to discuss his latest book, The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom, which takes us back late 1830s and 1840. John, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Graham. I went to a a government dual-medium school, and the historical methodology that they adopted was, take your pencil and underline the date. So I absolutely had an aversion to the Battle of Blood River, since I'd underlined 16 December 1838 uh, so often. You are, I think, going to take us a step further than that school of history, and you talk about the historical production of the Battle of Blood River, the bronze wagons, the old uh, Kurt Steinberg wagon, the new memorial on the other side of the river, the Nome Memorial, and the Bridge of Reconciliation, so to speak. So what inspired you within all these approaches to this period of history? What inspired you to write this book? Well, Graham, originally I was appointed soon after the fall of apartheid as the chairman of the Fuhrtrecker Museum and I was tasked to turn that into a multicultural institution, not just a pure Fuhrtrecker one. And one of its um, satellites was, in fact, Blood River. So I became familiar with, with the site. It was still very much then part of the Fuhrtrecker Museum. But then soon after that, in 1998, I was appointed by my cabinet to the um, Blood River Reinterpretation Committee, which was at that stage part of the government's attempt to reconcile the various groups in the country, to find a way of perhaps reinterpreting monuments, to find a way, in fact, of, of making a new nation out of the whole thing. So, in fact, I was brought into that and became very involved with that whole reinterpretation process, even though it was very much hijacked, if you like, by the by the Zulu speakers on the committee who really ended up presenting a, a version of the, of the tale which was still pretty pro-Zulu. And, in fact, I remember 
being at a conference at the University of Zululand, which is discussing the whole process, when I was told from the floor very determinedly by a young Zulu man that the Zulus could not have lost the Battle of Blood River as they were a warrior nation. So we have all of these kind of issues. That at the same time, I've written recently a number of newspaper pieces about this book. And again, there's been pushback from the from the Boer side about my idea of an invasion and and all of that kind of thing. So in other words, it's still very much a live issue. It's still the whole matter of Blood River and the war around it still very much is part of our very fractured history and our fractured perception of that history. And even though we have the bridge of reconciliation between the two monuments, separate ceremonies happen on either bank. The two sides are still in many ways quite separate. And so this interested me for a long time. But what really got me onto dealing with, with the war in Zululand was the work I'd been doing on the Cape Eastern Frontier in a previous book of mine, The, the Land Wars, which looks at the whole process of the nearly 100 years of warfare on the Eastern Frontier. And I was so aware that the fur trekkers who moved into the interior were veterans of the Sixth Cape Frontier War and indeed of the Fifth One as well, that they were taking their, their ideology, their practices, their perceptions, their prejudices from the Eastern Cape Frontier into the interior. And being so aware of that, I followed them, so to speak, on the next stage in, into the interior and into the Zulu Kingdom. That's extremely interesting. What I noted was how you set the scene for the conflict east of the Kathlamba Drakensberg Mountains into the broad pattern of conflict across the Highfield. You've now mm. begun with the Eastern Cape. Could you comment on how this particular set of events fitted into a, a period of, of turmoil across the subcontinent? Yeah, you know, here again, and I was very influenced a number of years ago by Norman Etherington's book, The Great Treks, which which looked at the whole process of the Infocane or the Difficane, as it's called on the high felt, this process of state building, conflict, the kind of ricocheting effect of societies as they were attacked and moved on and and all of that sort of thing. And it very much put the Boer Great Trek into the context of this, simply looking at it as another movement of people mm. at the same time. And in fact, when you look at the um, at the initial parties of, of the trekkers going onto the high felt, I mean, there was, in fact, the Interbele Kingdom, which had been an offshoot of the Zulu Kingdom. It had moved into what was more or less the Pretoria region, attacked by the Zulu and moved further on to, to where they were at this particular stage, further to the west, to look at the other societies they're impacting against, and also looking at the various groups of the Karana, the Griqua, the Busters, the Hartanars, and all the rest of it, people from the Northern Cape initially who were of mixed blood, who had been pushed out and resettled on the high felt, but in fact had the arms, the horses, the wagons, and indeed the whole societal structure of the Boers themselves, and they had been raiding and counter-raiding against the Indebele. So when the Boers arrived, they were simply looked at as another element of the same thing, seen as allies, in fact, for their long-standing wars against the Indebele. So, so the footrekkers fitted very easily into the ongoing conflicts already taking place on the high field. That's extremely interesting. A few miles from where I'm sitting is a pass through the Michalisberg known as Silikart's Neck, 
Mm-hmm. Zilikazi went through yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. Um, can we uh, lift our thoughts to the heavens? You, in your discussion of the uh, battles uh, between the the the, the trekkers and the Indibeli, plus other battles, mm-hmm. you mentioned the ritual of prayer before the battles. So in that context, how unique is the vow that was taken before the uh, 16th of December? You know, in a, in a sense, it's not that unique in that certainly in Calvinist practice, the idea of making a promise, if you like, to God in return for favor was part of practice, as it was indeed in the Catholic Church and others, as it is indeed in many religions. You are making a pact with the powers that be, and in return for favors, you promise something in return. And so, in other words, the the, the vow, the vow which was repeated for, you know, as as we move towards Blood River, was simply a promise that in return for a victory, the day would be remembered, a church would be built, all the rest of it. So it's a fairly standard kind of procedure, if you like, in many religions, not unique to the Four Trekkers. And the political significance of the vow sort of gained more power as uh, the politics of the nation changed, and oh. particularly in the 20th century. Oh, well, indeed. I mean, this was the covenant. This was the outward and visible sign of God's favor, that you'd made this pact with God for victory. God had given you the victory, which means, i.e., God is on your side. Mm-hmm. You know, And, and so this, in, in a way, became almost um, an ideological justification for white dominance and apartheid. It was God-given, if you like, and mm-hmm. who's going to argue with that? What is interesting is is reading the book, the dominance of the Trekkers was by no means assured and by no means entirely visible or in place for the period uh, between 1837 and 1840. No, indeed not. I mean, the it was, it was highly fractured. These were individual parties of families, their friends, their retainers, their livestock and all the rest of it, who were going off into the interior and indeed were forced to collaborate were forced to cooperate only by the power of circumstances in many ways. And I mean, even then, um, there were arguments, do we go down into Natal? Do we carry on to the Highfield? Which way do we go? Are we going to help you or not help you? Are we going to risk our manpower if you want a Natal settlement while we want a Highfield settlement? So, I mean, yes, one has to accept this very fractured um, alliance of convenience, if you like. In a sense, before... The Battle of Blood River, the Four Trekkers were very divided and the Zulus were united, where after the Battle of Blood River, the coin was flipped. That's to be very simplistic, but uh, you can perhaps look at it in one way from that perspective. So how decisive would the Battle of Blood River have been in the entire conflict? Well, not perhaps as decisive as, if you like, the um, the history of the period, the official history of the period has made it. Look, in the first place, a Zulu king was meant to be a successful king, a successful war leader. Therefore, any defeat is going to gravely affect his power, the allegiance to him. After all, the Zulu kingdom was a conquest state. There were always fractures, elements that are willing to break away. There were always brothers and relations, other great chiefs who had their eye on power. So once the king had shown a weak side, his position was difficult. But Blood River did not finish off King Dingon. He retreated north with his army essentially intact. 
he created new Ngongo Clovos further north, new capitals if you like, and rather like Msilakazi before him and many other of these wandering um, chiefdoms during the Infectane, um, he decided he was going to actually re-establish his kingdom north and conquer the Swazi kingdom. And indeed, he did move north, and it was only his defeat in the middle of 1939 against the Swazi um, at the Battle of Lubuya that really ruined that particular scenario. So he had no choice then but to come to terms with the Boers because his plans to move on had actually failed. But even then, it was a question of coming to an agreement with the Boers. After all, the Boers had withdrawn after the Battle of Blood River. They'd been badly ambushed at the Battle of the White Umfilosi or Pate, um, badly defeated, in fact. Mm. I mean, it's, it's often forgotten, you know, a line is drawn under that one. But they, they withdrew. So then it was a question of coming to an arrangement. And of course, the part of the British is important here. The British, this is another question altogether, who arrived in Port Natal to try and calm down all these troubles in, across the boundaries from the Cape Colony that might sort of disrupt affairs in the colony. So, so you've got this agreement that comes together. And if it hadn't been for Mpande, Tingan's brother, actually breaking the rope and fleeing south into Boer territory, maybe the situation would have ended there. If it hadn't been for that, Dingaan might well have remained in some kind of relationship with the Boers, and the British probably would have withdrawn and left them to it. So really, in the end, it's civil war in the Zulu kingdom rather than the Boer victory at Blood River that that was a decisive factor, I think. Would the Boers have ever dealt with uh, Dingaan as a diplomatic partner? Wouldn't there have been far too much animosity, and uh, wouldn't they have tried probably on both sides, both from both sides, to do each other in, in one way or another, would be a bit like the Ukraine and Russia. <laughs> well, in the end, probably that's quite likely, except at at the time they were negotiating, they were agreeing on um, Dingan paying tribute, except there were immediately problems. He wasn't paying tribute properly. He wasn't gathering the cattle. That the whole thing was difficult. So in many ways, I doubt if it could have been a long-term relationship. It was different when Mpande became king, his relationship with, with the British. By that stage, he was only too happy to have to have what he still had, in fact, under his control and, and to come to terms with the British. I think with Dingan, it probably wouldn't have been the end of the war. This would have been, if you like, a kind of lull. But nonetheless, who's to know? It never happened. It might have been possible. <laughs> you say something extremely interesting. Uh, well, you say several interesting things. One that, oh, that, that caught my attention last night was... <laughs> You would doubt ever grasped the extent to which Dingan's authority was based on ritual as well as on power politics. Mm -hmm. And you put this in the context of the uh, crass blundering around like very, very arrogant and drunken American tourists <laughs> around in Wuhan <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Do you see that as a decisive element in the decision to rid the kingdom of this, not this troublous priest, but this mm -hmm. troublous um, invader? You know, if one looks at the Zulu oral testimony and James Stewart and so on, it's it's what do the Zulus have to say about this? Or rather, what do they remember into the next generation? And it seems the decisive factor, ordinary Zulus didn't know anything about agreements, treaties, ceding territory south of Tugela, any of that kind of thing. 
they just knew that the Boers, in fact, seemed to be plotting to kill their king, that they were doing so um, because, like bad wizards, they were traipsing around at night and sassing out the joint and doing all these nefarious kind of things, that they had no were doing the king harm or at least intended to. And, I mean, it's interesting that the issue of second yellow's cattle, uh, or not second yellow's cattle, but, well, of the cattle, in fact, that the Zulu had captured from Zulikazi in their campaign in the middle of 1937. Cattle that, in fact, Zulikazi had captured from the Boers at the Battle of Fekhop. And these the Boers at the last minute demanded the return of. And for the Zulu, ordinary people, and for the king as well, this was an entirely unacceptable and ridiculous command. It was their cattle, they had captured it. No, they proudly boasted, no Zulu cattle ever leaves the kingdom. And so here were the Boers, crass in many ways, um, you know, um, where they were camping, refusing hospitality, being rude about things, galloping around, firing off their firearms, apparently peering into the Isigot law, which no man should do, creeping around at night. And so one way or another, the feelings, I think the decision had probably been already taken by Dingaan. Already, in fact, during Petrotip's first visit, when there seems to have been an abortive attempt to actually ambush and kill him on the way back to Port Natal, I think the, the decision had already been taken, but it was absolutely confirmed. And for the ordinary Zulu, not in the street, but in the Akanda, if you like, this, this was now entirely justified. Um, one other thing that uh, I wasn't aware of that you highlighted, and this is more down the, the straight military history line, was there had been an earlier battle round a lager, at which I think it was uh, Karl Lundmann, I've forgotten the name of the lager now, experimented with the tactics that were used at Blood River. And you say this battle has not received the attention it should have, because you then theorize that it did affect the way Zulu generalship uh, uh, was was exercised at Blood River. This is, I think, um, you're really thinking of the battle of, of um, Fekla, or where, in fact, the Boers had, in fact, really consolidated a heavy lager with two lines of wagons with with um, with pits full of stakes and all the rest of it. And the Zulu, in fact, had come come across this lager and attacked it. They'd surrounded it. Um, and were found they simply could not break through, even though there are only about 75 defenders and the Zulu army, perhaps five, 6,000 men, that, that there's the Zulu realization that it's going to be extremely difficult to, to, to take a lager like this. I mean, it's one thing attacking the Boer forces in the open at Blokrantz, another thing ambushing them, you know, at, at, at Eleni and so on, but but this kind of fortified position was another story altogether. And I think when it came to Blood River, there was the understanding that this was almost a task impossible, but it had to be done. The Boers were marching on Dingaan's capital. They had to be stopped. And even if it took enormous casualties, they were going to throw themselves at this lager until they actually broke through. But they knew how difficult it was going to be. And in fact... What made it even worse for the Zulu at, at Blood Rivers, they couldn't surround the lager, but because of the configuration of the, the Donga and the river, they kept on having to attack in one sector only, which made it much more difficult and, in fact, almost impossible. You've touched on, on what I was going to ask as my final question. 
somewhere underpinning the entire drama has been the role of another character, usually noises off. But then on this fateful 16th of December, they do try to upstage the event with the ceremony in Durban. And if you think of it, it was because of British policy, to some extent, that the, the trek became organized as mm-hmm. a movement to leave off the colonial authority in the Cape. Mm-hmm. And um, the day of their great victory, colonial authority arrived in Durban mm-hmm. uh, and finally fought with the Boers a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. So it, it's rather sad in a way. Yes. Um, well, well, Graham, I think, you know, this is all part of the way the British Empire was built in a sense, the way it was often dragged into the interior and into involvements that had never in, actually ever intended to be involved in. I mean, the Cape was simply supposed to be a secure staging post on the way to India, but Britain had been caught up in the already existing expansion of the Cape Eastern Frontier under Dutch rule, and this continued with the British trying to stabilize it, to build up front a solid frontier to put in more settlers, to build forts and all of that kind of thing. And their big problem with the Boers going to the interior was that by disrupting societies in the interior, this might set off a series of wars, further migrations, which would endanger and destabilize the frontiers of the Cape Colony. So Britain's involvement was essentially to try and stop the Boers um, dislocating the Zulu kingdom any further so that there would be no repercussions on the Cape Eastern frontier. I mean, Britain didn't want to be there. The Port Natal um, hunter traders had tried to be annexed by Britain for for 10 years or more, and the British had steadfastly refused to raise the flag. They only did so when they realized the Boers were a potential troublemaker um, in the interior, repercussing on the Eastern frontier. Mm. Yes, and then... uh... They were dragged in in in, in 1842, uh, right. and, and and stayed until 1910, right. um, <laughs> fighting the Boers on several occasions. Exactly uh, so. during that period, as well as the Zulus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, perhaps we should uh, go back and and look at the memorialization. Um, you, I think the Fortrecker Monument hasn't changed physically at all, but in a sense, its meaning has changed since 1994. And I personally look at it as a as a near crib of the monument in Leipzig commemorating the Battle of the Nations, uh-huh. but uh, as a very, very fine piece of almost Art Deco work. Blood River itself, I remember bitterly resenting as a schoolboy having to chip in to buy the bronze wagons. So <laughs> yeah. really a... a, a, a a symbol of dominance, it's it's become quite a nostalgic symbol. I don't know if you'd agree with that. It's uh, The Footrecker Monument's interesting. I mean, there's been an attempt, obviously, to reposition it, not physically, of course, but, mm. but, but ideologically. But the original meaning doesn't go away. I mean, something yeah. I came across just the other day, Stanford University has taken Rolf Schneider's book on, on the, on the, um, on the freeze of the of the Furtrecker Monument and has made it available online to look at the images and all the rest of it. And it has prefaced this with a content warning. 
<laughs> a content warning because there indeed are nasty boers, you know, smiting black people, you know, in the freeze and so on and so forth. So in a way, um, the the meaning of the monument, no matter how one might try to place it and look at it in architectural and artistic terms and all the rest of it, its original meaning, its symbolism was so clear that doesn't go away. I mean, one simply has, in a sense, to live with it and try and um, smooth it down a bit. But there it is. And and the lager is still there at Blood River, still its defensive lager. And there is the Zulu monument, like the the bull's, you know, chest and horns of the advancing Zulu army. I mean, <laughs> mm. you know, the symbolism has not gone away at all, even if we try and downplay it. One looks forward to the day. No, one doesn't. When Julius Malema starts talking more about monuments. I think um, it's a very fine production published uh, in South Africa a matter of weeks ago or days ago, perhaps, and available from all good bookshops. John Laban's The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom, 1837 to 1840. It's a a gripping account, and I hope that uh, it will be well received and go down well on many, many bedside tables and bookshelves. And with that, thank you very much indeed, John, for sharing the book and the processes behind the book with us. Well, thank you, Graham. Thank you for, for, for all of that. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.